0: Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 6. Leviticus, chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Hear now the word of our God from Leviticus, chapter 6, starting in verse 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place." The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, it shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat, uh, the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually, it shall not go out. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar, And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering, and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces, like a grain offering, and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons, who is anointed to succeed him, shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering, there is one law for them, the priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered, and every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread." And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a freewill offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings while well, an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean, detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of one that is torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, whether of fowl or of animal, in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "'Speak to the people of Israel, saying, "'Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord "'shall bring his offerings to the Lord "'from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. "'His own hand shall bring the Lord's food offerings. "'He shall bring the fat with the breast, "'that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. "'The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, "'but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons, "'and the right thigh you shall give to the priest "'as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings.' Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. This is the word of the Lord. As we go through these regulations for worship, we should at least note that God really cares how he is worshipped. He goes into great detail on all of these things. When, it come, when, you come, when you come into the presence of a holy God, it does matter how you come. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, but there's, there's no Leviticus in the New Testament, so there's nothing, nothing like it, right? Well... Have you ever read the book of Hebrews? (laughs) The book of Hebrews actually goes into considerable detail to talk about one chapter of Leviticus. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. Uh, Now, it's worth noting that Leviticus 16 happens to be the center of the book of Leviticus. There's a very real way in which when Hebrews expounds Leviticus 16, Hebrews is giving us a paradigm for understanding the whole book of Leviticus. Hebrews focuses on the rituals for the Day of Atonement because this is the center on which all of Leviticus hinges. Hebrews even briefly describes the tabernacle and its rituals in chapter 9, adding, Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. What does that mean? And why did God put it in Scripture if, if there's going to be no additional book of the Bible that goes into detail? We cannot now speak in detail. What Hebrews is doing is, is giving us something of the key to unlocking the rest of Leviticus. If the inspired author shows how Christ fulfills the Day of Atonement, then us ordinary pastors can apply those same principles to expounding the rest of the book. So tonight we start with the words in verse 9 command Aaron and his sons. Uh, this tells us we're actually seeing something a little different. In many respects we're going over many of the same offerings that we looked at last over the last couple of weeks, but now these directions are given to Aaron and his sons more directly. In chapters 1 through 5 it focused more on what the worshiper was to do in bringing these offerings to the priests. Now in chapter 6 and 7, the focus is on what the priest is supposed to do. Command Aaron and his sons is showing us how God is giving direction to the, the consecrated leaders, the ordained leaders in his church. Actually, in this respect, it's similar to how Christ establishes the twelve who then ordain the seven and other leaders for the church, commanding them to hand down the apostolic teaching from one generation to the next. And in, in chapter 6, the, the place where the command starts is, this is the law of the burnt offering, or the ascension offering, as we've seen. Uh, the burnt offering, or the ascension offering, is the foundation for the whole sacrificial system. It's called the ascension offering because the whole animal is burnt, and thus the animal ascends up to God in the smoke, which is said to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. When you offer a burnt offering, you are symbolically drawing near to God. You are saying, in effect, "We are here to worship you. We are here to draw near to you." The word translated "offering" is the word korban, which means to draw near, and the so the the burnt offering is quite literally an ascent, drawing near to God. That's what I mean. What what in our what our English what in, the English reads burnt offering. The Hebrew would read an ascent drawing near to God or drawing near. Uh, That's what this is. That's what the burnt offering is all about. Now, here in verse 9, we are told that the evening burnt offering would be left on the altar all night. And in the morning, the priest would carry the ashes out of the camp to a clean place. Uh, Needless to say, trash heaps in the ancient world, like in the modern world, uh, would generally be unclean places. But the, the ash heap from the altar must be a clean place, because the, the ashes from the Lord's holy offerings should not be dumped unceremoniously. So notice that the priest must change his clothes when he leaves the tabernacle. His priestly garments are holy. Holy. You may, you may have noticed that, that anything that uh, the, the blood touches becomes holy. So therefore, anything that you're wearing while you're, while you're engaged in your priestly service is holy and must remain in the, the holy place. And so if you're going to go out of the holy place, you must, you must change your clothes. So the priest would take the ashes off while he's wearing his priestly garments because he's dealing with holy things. And now he's got them in the container to take them out. So now then, then he'll go change his clothes, put on his ordinary clothes, take that out of the tabernacle to a clean place, dump them, and then return. To, and when he comes back, then he changes back into his priestly garments again. And then he returns to arrange the morning burnt offering on the altar. The morning burnt offering was then the foundation, quite literally, of the other offerings which would be burnt on top of it. And actually, if you think about the way the whole, the, it basically, it would be a whole day's ashes that will wind up being taken out at the, the following morning. Now, verse 12 then tells us, The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. Now, three times in verses 9, 12, and 13, we are told that the fire of the altar shall be kept burning. And particularly the focus here is on keep it burning all night. And the reason why they focus on the all night is because during the day, this won't be a challenge because during the day, they'll be doing their priestly duties and they can keep the fire going. But at night, somebody has to remain on duty in order to make sure that the fire does not go out. Now, why is it so important that the fire not go out? Now in, in one sense, I mean the text doesn't say, some have argued, oh, the the original fire on the altar had come down from heaven. So the picture would be that of maintaining the holy fire that came down from God himself. Though of course, given Israel's track record and the priests' track record for that matter, it's undoubtedly the case that that fire did go out and besides What happened the first time they had to pack up? Did they keep one little piece of fire going? Oh, we got to keep that fire. And then, no, they, they would, every time they set up the tabernacle, they had to start over and it wasn't fire from heaven that came down every time they set up the tabernacle. So I'm not, but I don't want to dismiss the point. The point is not the magical idea of, oh, this is the fire from, it's the picture what was? What had God done when he sent fire from heaven? What's the point of the fire from heaven that you see all the way running through the scriptures? It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's the coming of God himself to dwell with his people. Why does fire come from heaven? Because God himself wants to dwell with his people. It's this coming it's it's what Pentecost finally brings in its in the in the beginning of the fullness because of course the fullness of the fullness comes in the new creation when we will see him as he is because we will be like him but until then we have the Pentecost where the, the spirit came upon the church actually all through the early church and throughout the middle ages commentators would frequently note the connection between the fire of the priestly ritual and the Holy Spirit who is to to light and consume all aspects of the church's life all details of its faithfulness so that it becomes transformed into the shape of its promise which is God's indwelling in the body of Christ The, the fire was never to go out because the Holy Spirit was never to depart as the hymn writer put it Teach me to love thee as thine angels love, one holy passion filling all my f- my frame, the fullness of the heaven-descended dove, my heart and altar and thy love the flame. This is what we are to be as the people of God, with the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Verses 14 to 18 then deal with the law of the grain offering or the tribute offering it would be the perhaps a better translation of this but this is dealing with the morning and evening offering one handful of grain is burnt in the fire uh, together with all the incense while the rest is given to the priests they and their sons could eat of it now now, why, why can't their daughters eat of it why not their wives they were certainly allowed to eat other parts of the sacrifices why not the grain offering well that's why I said tribute offering is the other way of putting it the picture of tribute is important because the grain offering is given to the priests so that Israel may understand that they need a mediator, one who will deal with their sins. There must be a holy priest who will deal with sin. Therefore, it is the, the, those, the priests themselves who are the ones who may eat of the grain offering. And then verse 18 says that whatever touches these grain offerings shall become holy. We see the same thing in the sin offering and the, and the guilt offering. Uh, so, think about, think about the picture here. I think we're used to, if you, if, you've, if you ever spend any time reading Leviticus, you're used to the idea of, of the unclean contaminating the clean. But here we have something holy decontaminating whatever it touches. <laughs> whatever it touches becomes holy. Holy. Now, that doesn't mean becomes sanctified in our when we talk about sanctification. What, what becoming holy means is that you become set apart. You become devoted to the Lord's use. It's why verses 27 and 28 explain that anything sort of touched by holiness must either be destroyed or scrubbed. <laughs> if any earthenware vessel... Uh, simply could not be sufficiently scrubbed to remove all the blood. If there's blood on a clay pot, that clay pot is going to have blood on it. And that blood, the the holy blood, has now made this vessel holy so that it cannot be used for any other purpose. You cannot use a holy vessel for ordinary purposes again. Now, a bronze vessel could be scoured and cleaned thoroughly and returned to ordinary use because if you scour it well... You can remove the holiness. You might say, well, why would you want to remove holiness? Again, remember, holiness has to do with being set apart for God's holy use. So if you have a, if you have a, 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 bronze, a bronze vessel, there's blood on it. That blood needs to be removed in order for that. Because until it's removed, it can only be used for holy purposes. Now... Paul actually will use this principle to t- to talk to the church. <laughs> In First Corinthians seven, he says that the believing spouse sanctifies the unbelieving spouse, so that your children are holy; otherwise, they'd be unclean. What's Paul doing there? He's using this very principle from from Leviticus six of something that has that, that holiness contaminates or decontaminates whatever it touches. The the Corinthians are concerned that the presence of an unbelieving spouse will contaminate the believer, or at the very least, contaminate the kids. That if believer and unbeliever come together, have children, because of the presence of an unbeliever, therefore these kids will be unclean because unclean contaminates the clean. And Paul says, no, 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 it's the other way around. And especially in Christ, the holiness of Christ decontaminates the unbeliever so that your children are holy. Indeed, Paul will say that the unbelieving spouse is holy. Not that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified and going to heaven there. But but no, when he says is holy, he's saying has been decontaminated for the purpose that your children might not be contaminated by um, the uncleanness of unbelief. Now, so the, in that sense, for Paul, he says it's that the the holiness of the Christian is very much like the holiness of Christ, because after all, what happens every time Jesus touches the unclean? Does Jesus get contaminated? I mean, the Pharisees the Pharisees were were, were an awful bunch. They were they were wrong about many things, but one thing you'll never see them saying you'll never see them saying that. Jesus became unclean from touching the unclean. It just, you don't find it anywhere in the New Testament. Why not? Because the testimony of their senses was pretty obvious. When Jesus touches the leper, the leper becomes clean. They can't argue, oh, well, Jesus must be unclean. because he... They'll say he does it by the power of Beelzebub, but they won't say he became unclean. They'll say he's wicked, but they won't say he's unclean because they see he just decontaminated that person. And the same way, Paul says that the presence of the believing spouse decontaminates the, un, the unbelievers so that the unbelieving spouse becomes holy in this sense of the term. Now, um, Paul doesn't continue the illustration to the next step, but I think the next, there's a, there's a, if you just think about what's supposed to happen to this vessel, there are only two options. Either this holy vessel, namely the unbelieving spouse, this holy vessel, must either be scoured and rinsed, i.e. baptized, or destroyed in fire. If the unbelieving spouse does not come to faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized, then they will be destroyed. The unbelieving spouse has an external holiness, not an internal holiness. The outside of the cup has been cleansed, you might say, but not the inside. And for that, you need a baptism with both water and the Holy Spirit, as Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, in verses 19 to 23, we then hear about the consecration offering, which is a grain offering offered by the priest on the day, or for a priest, on the day when he is anointed. Note that unlike the other grain offerings, the, 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 the consecration offering, the, this grain offering for the priest must be burned entirely. There's no portion that the priest may eat. And this is because the, the grain offering was designed, designed to show the need of a mediator, but the priest is the mediator. The priest could not partake of what he himself offered to the Lord as a sign of the consecration of his life. And so every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned, it shall not be eaten. And so the, the grain offering of the priest, like the other grain offerings, is offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And it's this idea of the pleasing aroma it's it's is the language that Paul uses in Second Corinthians two when he speaks of how we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life after all Christ himself is the grain offering he is the living bread the true bread who came down from heaven and because Christ is that true bread which came down from heaven paul also says that we who are united to christ become one body one loaf with him so we also become in him the grain offering a pleasing aroma to the Father this is where when you th- just what what it's I find it fascinating how regularly all of these Levitical offerings get referred to whether directly or indirectly throughout the New Testament the apostles are assuming that, they're, they're, that those who they're writing to those who are hearing them you, I mean, you you may You may not always realize it when they're doing it because like many of their original hearers, many of the original hearers didn't necessarily know the details of the book of Leviticus all that well. But as you start to see, wow, the apostles are regularly referring to these offerings and it helps us to see who Jesus is. Just in the same way that seeing the offerings in the light of Jesus helps understand what the offerings were doing, also seeing Jesus in the light of these offerings helps us understand what Jesus was doing. Now, verses 24 to 30 then return to the sin offering. Now, so remember the, the sin offerings for the priest and for the whole community were burned outside the camp because the priests, the, 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 the sin offerings for the priest and the whole community uh, do not get burned on the altar because they, this, is, this is, these are the offerings that deal with sin. The ascension offering, the burnt offering, is not particularly about dealing with sin it's about a, it's about entering the presence of god but the problem is when you've got serious sin to deal with how do you deal with that serious sin it's and that's where the, so the sin offerings for the if if the priest commits a, commits sin then the sin offering must be offered outside the camp burned outside the camp. If the, the whole community sins, then the, there has to be, a, again, the sin offering outside the camp. Verse 30 explains that the reason uh, why because it says, no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. So the priest gets the meat from the sin offering for ordinary people or for a leader. Uh, but the um, the meat of this, for the for the offering for the whole community or for the priest, is too holy even for a priest to eat. The the reason is because the blood has been brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. There's there's a certain there, there's a certain sort of categorization or stratification of holiness. The there are things that are too holy even for a priest to eat, but then. The, priests, the priest has eats the holy things, and then other things are given to his family. Uh, and actually, we'll, we'll talk more about gender later in Leviticus, about what's going on with male and female here. But I want you to notice that the males of the priestly family have a responsibility to partake of the sin and guilt offerings. In a sense, when they partake of the sin and guilt offerings for ordinary Israelites and for Israelite leaders, they are... Part, this is part of their participating in the sufferings of Christ. That's basically that's what they are doing as they are they are taking upon themselves, as it were, the uh, think about themselves, the sin and, and, and guilt. And verses one through seven of chapter seven then also explain the guilt offering has the same rules as the sin offering. Um, and so again, the it's the meat must be eaten in a holy place by the males of the priestly family. And then in verses 8 to 10, God clarifies that in the case of the burnt offering, which the priest may keep the hides. So for instance, we had heard the animal get skinned, but we hadn't been told, what do you do with the hides? Well, that becomes the possessions of the priest who offers them. And the priest who offers a cooked grain offering keeps that, while the raw grain offerings were distributed equally among the priests. Again, there's a certain logistical nature to that, that if it's already been cooked, it needs to be eaten soon, so therefore it's his family. Whereas in the case of the raw grain offerings, that you can divide that up among all the priests. And you can see how these laws are designed to make sure that the priests are provided for. They do not have an inheritance with the rest of their brothers. The, the sacrifices and offerings are their inheritance. Now, um, I should mention, as we turn to the to the peace offering that the word sacrifice we, we tend to use sacrifice and offering interchangeably, but throughout the Old Testament, sacrifice is only used of the peace offering um, so a burnt offering or a sin offering is not referred to as a sacrifice because a sacrifice is a peace offering. Um, and particularly because this is where the peace offering is the one that the worshiper also partakes of. And there, and there are three reasons given why a person might bring a peace offering. First, in verses 11 to 15, it's as an expression of thankfulness for specific blessings. Uh, this is this is the a, a sacrifice of the peace offering for thanksgiving. That if... Uh, in this case, he would he would bring unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers mixed with oil, and leavened loaves mixed with oil. One of each would belong to the priest. So uh, we often think of, oh, it's unleavened bread that's what is brought to the priest. Well, here's in the case of the sacrifice of thanksgiving, uh, this is also, also they would use leavened loaves. And also note that for the, the, for the, the sacrifice of, uh, of the peace offerings for Thanksgiving, the flesh of the peace offering has to be eaten the same day. But then notice the contrast as if it's brought as the fulfillment of a vow or as a free will offering for blessings in general. These, in these instances, it could also be eaten on the second day as well. But we're told that if he eats any on the third day, his sacrifice would not be accepted and he would bear his iniquity. Why does it matter whether you can eat it for one day or for two days? Well, the standard peace offering was the thank offering connected with a burnt offering. First, you would bring the burnt offering in a, to approach God. And then you would bring the peace offering as an offering of thanksgiving. The meat had to be eaten on the same day. It was a required sacrifice and has stricter regulations. But the devout worshiper may also bring a peace offering voluntarily. So this is where, in the case of the, the, peace, the peace offering for Thanksgiving, this is, this, this, this is it's a required offering and therefore has stricter regulation. But if you make a vow before the Lord, then when you fulfill your vow, you would give thanks to the Lord for his grace in enabling you to fulfill it. And you would bring a peace offering. Um, likewise, for the... Uh, but And actually, just a, a, in our day, we don't think about vows the same way they did back then. Most of the vows we take nowadays are sort of necessary vows. Uh, I say necessary. Not, you're, you're very rarely required to take vows. But, for instance, if you're going to get married, then you'll be required to take vows. Uh, if you're going to testify in court you'll have to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help you God. Um, If, but part of it is the way that, in those, the way that God sets up vows in the Old Testament, when you take a vow, part of the vow is going to be to bring a vow offering to the Lord. So there's going to be, it's it's sort of, in some respects, it's a bigger deal. Um, And, But it's also the case in Deuteronomy 23 says that if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. But if you do make a vow and don't perform it, then you're guilty. So the, the Israelite could bring a peace offering simply out of his gratitude for God, which is a free will offering. Or in the case of a vow, he could bring a vow offering. But in either case, since the sacrifice was not required... There is less regulation, you might say. You could you could eat meat on the second day, and, and part of part of what God is doing here is also saying, because you might say, why does it matter how, when when it gets eaten? Well, if it's required that it gets eaten the same day or even the next day, then you'll be there's a, there's a little incentive given to you to in, to include more people with you, <laughs> because when uh, there's going to be it, it's 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 one of the it's one of the consistent refrains in the, the, the mosaic law that you be concerned for the the poor, the widow, the orphan, and so being able to provide meat for those. Hey, if, you don't, if we don't eat it today or tomorrow, it'll go bad. It'll not literally go bad, but in the, in the before God, it will go bad, um, and so therefore you don't um, you don't let it go unclean. Also. Um, verses 19 to 21 then give further details to explain how this works if the flesh of the peace offering touches something unclean then it is contaminated and it shall not be eaten also those who are ceremonially unclean should not partake of the peace offering the one who is unclean who partakes of a peace offering must be cut off from his people so if you, if you touch something unclean and you don't go through the ritual for cleansing, then if you eat the Lord's peace offering, you'll be cut off. And this, this doesn't refer to the death penalty. Rather, it's what you might call excommunication. He's excluded from the fellowship of Israel. And while it's not stated directly here, if you think back just a couple chapters to the sin offering, it, actually, that's what you have to do. If you, have, if you have sinned with respect to the lord 's holy things, the guilt offering is an appropriate response. You need to bring a guilt offering to God to say i have I, I, I partook of, of holy things while I was unclean so if if one who was cut off from his people could be restored, if he brought a guilt offering now. And you can you can see how Jesus deals with this in the New, in the New Testament. Jesus regularly shows mercy to sinners, but he's quite severe with the Pharisees and those who are high-handed in their treatment of the helpless. There's a way in which Jesus deals with with the uh, the weakness of people in one way, but he but the willfulness of others he deals quite severely with them. Verse, verses 22 and following then repeat the prohibition against eating fat and blood. Now notice here we shift back to speak to the to the people of Israel. So we've in a sense we've concluded the the section for Aaron and his sons. I it's just it's such a short section that I include it in this sermon because it's actually weaving together some final admonitions to the people of God as they think about these sacrifices because. God had said back in chapter 3 that the fat belongs to God, so you shall not rob God by eating what belongs to him. Uh, And then blood is off-limits as well. The life is in the blood, and God wanted his people to respect life in all creatures. And then in verses 28 to 34... Moses is instructed to tell the people of Israel that whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. Uh, In the discussion of the peace offering in chapter 3, it said merely that the worshiper partook of the peace offering. Now we discover that the priests also partake of the peace offering. So if you think about the the logic of the the burnt offering, the grain offering, and and the peace offering... The, the burnt offering, the whole animal is consumed in the fire. In the grain offering, part is burned in the fire, part goes to the priest. In the peace offering, part is burned in the fire, part goes to the priest, and the rest is eaten by the worshipers. The logic of these three offerings, which were designed to go together, is designed to show we can only come to God through, through the offering, but then we come to God through a mediator, the priest, and we come to God together as his people and partaking of the sacrifice together. And that's where you can easily see how our Lord Jesus Christ is the priest through whom we come to God. And he is the sacri- He's, he's all of the, the offerings and sacrifices together. And then you have in, uh, this discussion of the wave offering and the, the contribution for the priests, uh, it's a it's a it's a picture that many have pu- been puzzled by. It's like okay, you you take the uh, you take the, the pe- this piece of meat and you sort of wave it before the Lord. Uh, it's it's an odd picture in some respects, but it's designed to be a sort of a visual act of submission to God, um, and, um, and and a way of feeding the priests. It, As verses 35 and 36 say, the the priesthood was not left to just sort of the goodwill of the people. Their pay, as it were, is commanded by God. Uh, and, And Paul will use this in 1 Corinthians 9 to explain why ministers should be paid. And he says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that th- those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In a sense, you could say the, the details of Old Testament economics have changed. But the, the basic principle remains the same. And I'd like to, I'd like to close. Actually, if you turn over to Romans 15. Because Paul, as he's as, as Paul's talking about how how we should think about sort of, I know some people some people struggle a bit with paying pastors. Why is that connected to the priesthood? Well, listen to how Paul says this in in Romans fifteen, uh, in starting in verse fourteen. Paul actually talks about his ministry as a priestly service of the gospel of God. That there is, there's a way in which what he's doing is, this is the, in order that the, the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There's a way in which what Paul is doing in the, in with the Gentiles being brought in is, this is part of how God, is bringing a people to himself. That and actually, I've I've been struck over the years by how often Paul will use sort of sacrificial language as he talks about himself being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of your faith. Uh, all this sort of very priestly language, which is it's important. It's important for us to see because I think sometimes we say, "Oh, well, we, you know, it's just the priesthood of all believers now." It's like, well. Yes, but then again, do you know where the priesthood of all believers, where that idea comes from? Exodus 19, where God says that he brought Israel to himself to be a royal priesthood. Not just just the the Levitical priests, all Israel was called to be a royal priesthood. The idea of the priesthood of all believers is an Old Testament concept. And so, Recognizing that there, it's. I think. I think we need to recognize there's a priestly aspect. Not that. Not that the New Testament ministry is a priesthood, but rather that there's a priestly aspect to what we do as pastors, what we do as ministers of Christ, because this. It's what it's what Paul says, to be a minister of Christ, Jesus, to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Obviously, these are, the, the, the offering of the Gentiles is is not referring to the, the, that we're bringing animal sacrifices. I mean, No, the, the days of animal sacrifice is over. But the offering of the Gentiles is that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That we offer ourselves, the, the that we, because we have been joined to Christ, and if you just think about it, if we have been joined to Christ, then we are joined to His offer. His as He's the burnt offering, as He's the grain offering, as He's the peace offering, as He's the sin offering. We are joined to Him, and therefore we participate in His sacrifice. We participate in Him, and that's how the you might say the the priestly ministry, um, the priestly service of the gospel of God is related to this. And we'll, we'll talk more about this as we keep going into the consecration of the priests next time. But part of where we're, what we've seen is that uh, you know, Leviticus is, is all about the, the holiness of the people of God. And you can't really talk about holiness until you have dealt with sin. And so Leviticus starts with the offerings and sacrifices and goes on to talk about holiness Because of what God has done for you in the offerings, now we live before him as his holy people. And that's precisely how the New Testament approaches it. Because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, therefore be who you are in Christ. Because your sins have been forgiven, act like those who have been renewed in the image of Christ. As Paul says, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, have mercy on us. Help us, we pray, because we need your grace and we need your mighty power and we need your Holy Spirit, the, the fire of, 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 of your Spirit to to cleanse and to purge and to renew us that, that in all that we do and all that we say and all that we think, we might be for, for your glory and for the honor of, of your beloved Son. Help us, Father, and and strengthen us by your Spirit, to live before you, that we, might, that we might love you with a whole heart, that we might love our neighbor as ourselves, that we might show forth your goodness and your glory to the watching world, that those around us might see in us and hear from us the glorious gospel of our Savior, that they might believe in Jesus and trust in the way of, of your Son. Have mercy on us and protect us this night and, and grant us your peace in the name of your Son. Amen.